Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today, I'm going to cover all of the books written by economist Russ Roberts. These were books 19 through 23 for my 2021 reading list. Well, Russ Roberts is the host of the Econ Talk podcast, and it's one that I've listened to since 2013. He's been podcasting since 2006. The tagline for the Econ Talk is Conversations for the Curious, and he has interviewed everyone from Milton Friedman to Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And Taleb does not do a lot of podcast episodes, so it's always refreshing and, and fun to hear him on the Econ Talk podcast. But despite the title, don't don't let that scare you. He, uh, it's not just about economics. It covers a wide variety of topics. And what Russ usually does is read the book of the guest, and then they do an hour long conversation along the topic uh, from that book. And so a, a lot of times it'll weave into economic ideas, but but other times it's something totally outside of economics. But my favorite thing of all of this podcast is that Russ will change his mind, and he will do it often. And that's very uh, refreshing and, and unique, especially in our time where there's so much polarization. It's just neat to to listen to an episode and kind of see and hear the wheels turning that uh, if he comes across a better idea, he will he will take that. He he will not dig down deeper into what he thinks and, and but but he's open to changing his mind and there's a humility there and, and that's my favorite thing about the Econ Talk podcast. Uh, Russ is also the author of five books. Those are the five books that I'll be talking about today. And he is working on a sixth book that will release late next year, so late 2022. So the five books that I'll be covering today are are these The Invisible Heart with the tagline, an economic romance, perhaps two words you never thought you'd hear in the same sentence, economic romance. The second book is The Choice, the third, The Price of Everything, the fourth, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, and the fifth, Gambling with Other People's Money. Russ is a professor. Uh, he's also now the, a, the president of a college, a role he just started recently. Uh, but what he does is use a variety of mediums to communicate economics, the theories of economics, the ideas. And he if you're familiar with the Hayek versus Keynes rap videos, that is a result of Russ Roberts. Russ writes articles regularly, uh, these books, the, he has his podcast, he does other videos, he's got classroom resources. And so he's just trying to 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 approach any new medium, any medium that's that's there, he's he's trying to use it in a way where he can communicate economics in in a in a way that makes it understandable. So it's neat to 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 see all these different ways he does it, and and especially with the podcast, and and then now with these these books. So for reading stats, uh, these five books took me a total of eighteen hours and thirty two minutes to to get through. That was May sixteenth through twenty eighth. Uh, all five books contained 891 pages total, so that was around 55 pages per day. So in, in continuing in this segment of the podcast episode, I will be covering the first three books, The Invisible Heart, The Choice, and The Price of Everything. In segment two of this episode, I will cover 
the other two books, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life and Gambling with Other People's Money. In segment three, I will cover common themes that showed up throughout these these books. And then in the final segment, I'll end it as I do all my episodes where I'll cover the one thing, my one key takeaway from, from this set of books. So let me just dig in right away into these first three books. And the, and the first one is The Invisible Heart, the economic romance, the economic love story. So it follows Sam Gordon, who's an economics teacher, and Laura Silver, who's a literature professor, and they're, they're teaching at the same place. And it, it, through their interaction, a lot of uh, a lot of dialogue happens that uh, goes into a number of of different economic ideas. And what's great is that you 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 see one side of 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 the views of of economics, and then you see an, another side. Um, so so you. you yeah, you, you get both sides, but then um, there's obviously one that that stands stronger in this. So as the title, The Invisible Heart, one of the main ideas in the book is, is this, that, uh, and this is a quote from page 76, there's an invisible heart at the core of the marketplace, serving the customer and doing it joyously. End quote. Uh, you often hear of the invisible hand, and so this it goes a step further. There's an invisible heart at the core of the marketplace, serving the customer and doing it joyously. This book had a, if, if you've read Atlas Shrugged, it had a similar feel to that where there, there's a lot of dialogue going on to, to highlight different uh, ideas and, and points. Uh, I would say this one, this book was a little more nuanced than, than Atlas Shrugged, but, uh, but it, if, if you've read that, it, it has a similar feel to that. Uh, one comment that Sam, the main character in the book, says is, is that it takes six months to explain these ideas. Uh, he's trying to explain these ideas to, to Laura Silver, the, the uh, literature professor. He says it takes six months to explain. And, and part of the reason is that some of the, uh, these economic ideas and, and the, well, they're counterintuitive concepts that at, if, when you first hear them, they may sound unkind or selfish. So many people may just turn off their mind and not even want to go further because, uh, it, it, because it sounds unkind or selfish. Uh, but, but Sam's point in this book and, and Russ's point through the character of Sam is that they're, they're, they might actually be the opposite of unkind and selfish. They actually may be kind and, and very giving. Uh, but let's, let's talk about them. Let's, let's look at them in, in a new way. And so that's The Invisible Heart. That's the, the first one I read of, of Russ Roberts's books. The next one is The Choice. And The Choice, well, if you've seen the movie A Wonderful Life, it, you remember in that movie, there's a guardian angel that comes down and, and, and kind of shows what life could be. So uh, in a similar vein, this, this, uh, this book follows David Ricardo, who is the British political economist, and he becomes a guardian angel to Ed Johnson. And Ed Johnson is a, the, this fictional character in, in this book, The Choice, and he is the CEO of a, a plant, of a, of a, a manufacturing facility. And D David Ricardo, if, if uh, that name sounds familiar, well, I, I learned about him in college in, in economics courses, and his name is synonymous with comparative advantage. So uh, I, we learned about Adam Smith first, and then we learned about David Ricardo. And so in this book, David Ricardo is the guardian angel who comes down to speak to Ed Johnson in the 1960s in America and basically shows him uh, David Ricardo, the, the guardian angel, shows Ed, this is what America will look like with increased protectionism. So Ed Johnson, the CEO, he wants to protect his 
his factory. He wants to protect his manufacturing facility from from uh, competitors. And so this guardian angel shows him what the future would look like if that goes through, if uh, if a politician is able to get that passed, that protectionism passed. So that's one avenue. The other avenue is what would America look like with an increasing amount of free trade. And so what Russ is doing here is he's, he's taking actual information. He's taking actual things that happened from 1960 on and, and, and shows how, how, the, how things turned out, how they could have turned out. And it's a really interesting look at, at things in that sense. And one, one thing that really stuck out to me in, in how he presented this was, was connecting factories. And so Russ connects this one factory of the manufacturing facility with a factory from Motorola. And it's just an interesting way that, that he connects these and, and says, if you protect that car plant, you may never have the Motorola factory. You may never have the, the other factory later on if you're trying to protect these jobs. And it reminded me of, of a quote in Atlas Shrugged, and, and I read that 13 years ago, but there's one quote I always think of, and it's this. It goes, nobody traced the closing of a motor company in Michigan that had waited for a shipment of ball bearings, its machinery idle, its workers on full pay, or the closing of a sawmill in Oregon that had waited for a new motor, or the closing of a lumberyard in Iowa. And it just keeps going on and on. But the, but uh, but this this quote in Atlas Shrugged is no one thought about the the ramifications for for different things of, of closing factories or 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 stopping production or that kind of thing. And there there are always always these other explanations for it, but no one looked at the closing of these factories and, and the the further ramifications. Uh so just that one came to my mind as I was reading um Things that we may not think are related could could be related, and, and this book does a great job of, of showing those things. Another part that stuck out to me, and, and uh, this is because this was the path my, my grandfather took, was uh, a part where in the dialogue they, they talk about a farmer becoming a salesman. So I just want to read this part because this is exactly what my grandfather did. My grandfather started out as a farmer, and he became a salesman for, for insurance companies. Uh, so here, here we go. But didn't those farming jobs disappear, Dave? Not in the way you'd think. A farmer didn't wake up one morning to find his overalls gone, his tractor vanished, and his fields of grain replaced by a shopping center. As technology improved, some farmers' incomes fell. Some farmers retired early. Others sold their farms to more efficient farmers, and some just struggled until retirement. But the biggest change caused by that technology was invisible. The dreams of the children of farmers changed. Those children saw that agriculture was not a booming industry. Even though their parents and grandparents had been farmers, they saw that farming was going to be less profitable than it had been. Some of them weren't thrilled about becoming farmers anyway. They made plans to become salespeople, engineers, chemists, and pilots. And those jobs were available precisely because America made the decision to let the agricultural sector sector get smaller. So you're saying that the people took different types of jobs? That's right. Some even went into a new industry called television. Can you imagine how poor America would be in 1960 or 2005 if America had made a decision back in 1900 to preserve the size of the farming industry in the name of saving jobs? Uh, End quote. I just thought that that was neat, just tying a lot of things together and and how it's really hard when a a factory closes to, to... 
to look beyond that and not just to see that factory closing uh, in, in the jobs lost and the pain that that causes, but to look further on and in, in, in to, to consider the next generation. And so if something like that happens in a small town, we also need to take a look at the kids who left that small town because that factory closed and lived different lives, lived, lived, uh, went into different types of work and, and maybe fulfilled dreams that they, that they had. Um, and it's so just neat, neat way of looking at it, uh, and that that this book pointed out the last book in in this section the price of everything read the the reason that russ wrote this book and this comes from the very end under sources this book is my attempt to give the beginner and the expert a better understanding of the role prices play in our lives how they create harmony between the competing desires of consumers and entrepreneurs and how they steer resources and knowledge to transform and sustain our standard of living end quote so that's the the goal of this book uh, all three of these books I've covered so far are are fiction they're works of fiction they're they're novels and so this this is another one this one this story follows Ramon Fernandez and he's a tennis player at Stanford who's originally from Cuba and then his his girlfriend Amy who's the daughter of a, a senator the whole book starts out with a big box store which is just called big box and after an earthquake, they double all of their prices. They're just straight up across the board, doubling of all the prices in the store. And it begs the question, is that the right thing to do in a tragedy, in a, a circumstance like that? And so th this book is really an exploration of that question amongst, amongst others. It also gets into emergent order, which if you've listened to Russ's podcast, it's, it's a topic that comes up a lot. And, and emergent order is a long chance, a long chain of chance held together by self-interest. Uh, emergent order is order that emerges. It's something that's happening that isn't the intention of the participants. And the other key feature of it is there is no overlord. There is no one at the top directing these things. There is, there is no, uh, as, as Russ calls, calls it, there's no weaver of dreams tying all these things together. It just happens. A few other things that, that stuck out in this one, I want to read um, a description of the invisible hand. So here we go. It's hard to imagine the invisible hand. After all, it's invisible. Leaving things alone, leaving people to their own desires and dreams would seem like the last way to make the world a better place. So most people have a natural disposition for using the government to make things better. It would seem that managing something is always better than leaving something unmanaged, but it's not true. I think the world would be a better place if more people understood the virtues of unmanaged, uncoordinated, unorganized, undesigned action. End quote. Last, last uh, part that, that I really enjoyed in this book, it was, it was almost just a throwaway sentence, but, um, but it just struck me. And, and uh, it's within two paragraphs here, so I'll just read this quickly. I once heard a lesson when I was 15 that stuck with me, and I'd like to share it with you today. It was a hot September afternoon in Miami, and I was at tennis practice. We were doing some conditioning drill, and we were dying. The coach called us over, and we knelt on the grass on one knee, panting, chest heaving, sweating. Coach gave us some kind of pep talk. I've forgotten most of it. It was probably something about when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But at the end, he said something I'll never forget. At the end, he said, you honor your parents by what you become. 
you honor your parents by what you become. What he meant was that rather than honoring your parents by what you say to them or how you treat them, although that's important too, you honor your parents by the life you choose to lead. That's what they ultimately care about. That is their reward. End quote. I just, I just love that. It's just something I think about. And, and, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a commandment on honor your parents. And what does that, what does that look like? And I, I, I just love that line. You honor your parents by what you, you become. One last thing. I know I said the, the previous thing was the last, but, uh, this, this was really cool. So it, throughout the book, Russ says, there is no weaver of dreams. There is no, no person who's, uh, who's coordinating everything that, that is working. And, and if you try that, if you try to have someone who's doing that, it ends up being a disaster. So there, there is no weaver of dreams. Yet, Russ dedicates this book to a weaver of dreams. And the weaver of dreams is his wife. And I just thought that was so beautiful. There, there is no weaver of dreams, but if there was, it would be his wife. Continuing on, the next book is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Well, what's the book that comes to your mind when you think of Adam Smith? If you're like me, it's probably Wealth of Nations. That's his economics book. But this book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, actually digs into Adam Smith's other book. And that is his philosophy book, and it's called Theory of Moral Sentiments. So Russ uh, read Theory of Moral Sentiments and loved it. And so he put this, this book together to, to talk about that book, but also to tie it together with some of the ideas from Wealth of Nations. So it's a really interesting book in that sense. And it starts off with a story of uh, the finger versus the storm, or as some people call it, the thumb versus the tsunami. Uh, basically, if, if you're sitting in England and you lose your pinky, uh, it gets cut off somehow, maybe an accident, um, and that same day that you lose your pinky, there is a storm in Asia that just wipes out tens of thousands of people. They're, they're dead. What are you going to be thinking about as you go to bed that night? You, maybe you heard the news, you heard about the ten, tens of thousands of people, but your, your lack of a pinky, the, the place where your pinky was, it, it hurts. And so you're actually going to be thinking about your pinky more than that tsunami or that storm that took out tens of thousands of people. So is that, is that self-interest or is that selfishness to be thinking about that? Conversely, if a genie came out of a bottle and said, hey, there, you know, tens of thousands of people are going to die unless you give up your pinky, most people would be more than willing to, to give up that pinky uh, to save the lives of these tens of thousands of, of people. So again, uh, where, what's the line between selfishness and self-interest? And how I always thought about wealth of nations and the economic theory of the baker baking the bread for, uh, in, in that, that not for other people, but for himself in that, that bread would provide bread for that community. Uh, but the, the baker was not doing it for the other people. He was doing it for himself. I always viewed that as, okay, the baker is selfish, but Russ makes the distinct, the distinction that that is self-interest and that's not the same thing as being selfish. And so the brilliance here is that Adam Smith is basing a economic theory. He's basing a moral theory off of self-interest as opposed to selfishness. 
And so that that's what this book digs into a, a little bit. Um, but the thing I love about that, and the reason I've always been enamored with with Adam Smith to some degree, is that he takes he takes people as they are, and it's so Adam Smith is honest about who we are. He he's not trying to create a theory about what we could be if we just made these changes, but he creates theories based on who we actually are. And we, as we are, we're self-interested and how can we, so instead of trying to create an economic model based on forcing people to be a, a certain way, what if we create an economic model based on how people actually are? And so that's on the economic side, but how does that look on the moral side? And that's what this book gets into. But uh, let me let me just go into that a little bit more of of Smith seeing us as Russ Roberts says Smith didn't see us as saints; he saw us clearly. So continuing on, Russ says this: the theory of moral sentiment simply has a different focus than that from Wealth of Nations. It doesn't represent a different view of human nature or a different theory of how people behave or a more optimistic vision of humanity. It's about a different sphere of human interaction. The author of the theory of moral sentiments and the Wealth of Nations is the same man with a consistent view of humanity. He is mostly interested in how people actually behave, not how we'd like them to behave. He's interested in understanding human behavior. Behavior. So in the two books, the emphasis are different because he is writing about two different, very different spheres of life. End quote. Um, one other thing that stuck out in this book is is hard and fast rules. And let me let me just read this section. I thought this was very insightful. Smith understands something deep about human nature with this warning: hard and fast rules are easier to keep than rules that are slightly relaxed. Let me say that again. Hard and fast rules are easier to keep than rules that are slightly relaxed. The opposite should be true. You'd think abstinence would be much harder to keep than moderation, yet it is much easier to give up potato chips than to eat just one or a few. But shouldn't it be otherwise? Shouldn't it be easier to limit yourself to a few chips than to have none? Yet a few often leads to a few more and a few more. Smith counsels us to keep the general rules of justice with the greatest exactness. They are accurate in the highest degree and admit of no exceptions or modifications, end quote. thought that was great. Uh, hard and fast rules are easier to keep than, than ones where you're, you're, you say, oh, I'll just have this one. Uh, another idea in this, this book that, that really helped me was distinguishing between small decisions and daily habits. In this podcast, I talk a lot about daily habits and the importance of daily habits. Uh, as an example, I would not have this reading project if it weren't for daily habits, uh, the daily habit of reading. Uh, it, it allows me to get through a number of books, more books than I'd ever had in the past because I, I make it a practice to have daily habits. But there's, and, and I kind of just grouped everything within this this idea of daily habits and the importance of daily habits. But I think what I was missing from that was the other idea of smaller decisions. And smaller decisions being those that they may seem insignificant. They may, they may be decisions that we're making on our own, in our own house, with no one else watching, no one else knowing we're making that decision. But those are the important decisions. Those are the the decisions that are are moving us one one direction or the other. And so uh, as, as I bring up a lot, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of, of us kind of 
with every decision moving towards a heaven or a or a hell in the sense that every decision is leading one direction or the other and there's nuance there perhaps but these small decisions the ones that we make by ourselves without anyone knowing are the important decisions because they will determine that that direction we're moving when we're making the larger decisions so i i, I appreciated that dis- that distinguishing idea i guess of of daily habits versus smaller decisions. And and this book gets into that a little bit more. This is really the perfect book for Russ to have written. Uh, It gets into economics, but it also gets into life and life well lived. And if you listen to Econ Talk, it's not just about economics and and macro and micro and, and boring concepts, but it's about life and it's about how to live life well. And in this book gets into it, but it ties it into economic theories as well. It's just it's a great book and uh this this is my favorite of the of the five. So let let's get into the final book and then uh in the next segment I'll cover some common themes that that show up in a lot of these books. So the last book, Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverse Incentives Caused the Financial Crisis. So to recap really quickly, the first three books were all fiction. They were all novels. The next book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, was nonfiction. And this final book is also nonfiction, but it's more just, let's take a look back at that 2008 financial crisis, what happened. And so this is a short book. It's um, 90 pages. And so I'm just going to read a few parts here. And the first is just a summary that that happens in the introduction. And, And this really sets the stage for the whole book. In the United States, we like to believe we are a capitalist society based on individual responsibility. But we are what we do. Not what we say we are. Not what we wish to be, but what we do. And what we do in the United States is make it easy to gamble with other people's money particularly borrowed money, by making sure that almost everyone who makes bad loans gets their money back anyway. The financial crisis of 2008 was a natural result of these perverse incentives, end quote. Russ talks about capitalism being a profit and loss system. So profits encourage risk taking and losses encourage prudence. If you take away the loss, the ability to have a loss, then you discourage prudence and it messes with the whole system. But the thing about this and the thing about the, the financial crisis of 2008 is the people who ultimately got hurt the most were the taxpayers. And they were the ones that kept having to foot the bill. What's also interesting is that uh, Russ looks at the private investments by the CEOs that were running these firms that that got the bailouts, that uh, were making these risky decisions with with company money, with, with borrowed money, the private investments by these CEOs were not in these risky funds. And so you, you have this, this dissonance between what the leaders were privately investing in and what they were publicly investing in with these borrowed funds. And so again, it just kind of goes into that... Um, Profits encouraging risk-taking and losses encouraging prudence. There was no prudence on the the public side. There was prudence on the private side because there was more skin in the game. Uh, Which, on a tangent, kind of brings me to another (laughs) thing that's that's interesting. For public figures, you can actually view what they invest in. And so the the chairman of the Fed, um, 
you can see what they invest in, the funds that they invest in. So for many years, I would I would tell people uh, if if we we're talking finances, uh, I, w- I would say, well, Janet Yellen is my financial advisor. They kind of look at me weird, and it, but I'd say, well, you could look at what Janet Yellen actually invests in, and you can see the Vanguard funds that she has chosen. And so I just, I just looked at what she invested in. I thought head of the head of the Fed, probably pretty smart with finances and. Let's see what she's investing in. And so that gave me some ideas for some things to invest in. Um, Just a side note there. Interesting uh, reading this book because it goes through this whole, the whole financial crisis and what led to it. And a lot of that being these, the, the the ability to obtain a hundred percent down mortgage. And I was one of those people. I did that in 2004. I bought a condo on with a hundred percent uh, not 100% down, 100% fully mortgaged property. So I didn't put any money down. I borrowed 100% to to get this mortgage. And I was part of the problem. And it was just interesting to to read about that and how my individual action actually was part of that, part of that whole thing. And, and again, that's a common idea in, in, in all of Russ's books. But uh, it really hit home when I was seeing Oh yeah, I, I did that. I made a really dumb, uh, dumb financial decision, and um, but it was part of a, a larger thing. Russ says this is not capitalism. This is crony capitalism, rescuing rich people from the consequences of their decisions with money coming from average Americans is bad for democracy. End quote. So to recap this book, this is uh, uh, towards the end of the book. Here's a, a good recap. Russ writes this, an unpleasant but unavoidable conclusion is that Wall Street was and remains a giant government-sanctioned Ponzi scheme. Homebuyers borrowed money from lenders who got their money from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and banks that borrowed money from investors who expected to be reimbursed by the politicians who took that money from taxpayers. Almost everyone made money from this deal except the group left holding the bag, the taxpayers. There is an old saying in poker, if you don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's probably you. We are the suckers. And most of us didn't even know we were sitting at the table. End quote. Now into segment three and a few of the common ideas that that came through in a lot of these books. The first, I mentioned it before, self-interest is not the same as selfishness. I often describe this incorrectly. So whenever I would talk about Adam Smith and what I learned in college, in economics courses, I would say that the baker was selfish and the baker was doing that out of selfish motives. But Russ makes the distinction that no, it's it's out of self-interest, self-interest for the baker's family, for providing for his family. That's the reason he's making the bread. It's not uh, out of joy or... or uh, necessarily desire to help his his fellow man it's it's first of all self-interest but that self-interest makes the system run and and that's okay uh it doesn't mean that the whole system is based off selfishness but it it does mean that the system is based off people as they actually are as opposed to hoping that people are not just self-interested or you know hoping that everyone looks out for their 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 brother and sister um Self-interest versus selfishness comes up a lot in these these books. 
Here's one quote, but the powerful thing about the marketplace is that your baker doesn't have to be overflowing with love for you to treat you well. Competition combines with self-interest to serve you without anyone being in charge, and it works so flawlessly we never even notice it, end quote. That was from the, the, um, the Invisible Heart, the first book I covered. Another idea that comes up a lot is incentives versus legislation. So can you incentivize as opposed to putting it into law? Uh, comes up a lot. Another one, tampering with incentives. Beware of the unseen impact of that. So kind of further on to that discussion of incentives versus legislation. If you tamper with those incentives, here, here are a few quotes. When you, temp- when you tamper with a complex system, you often make things worse. Another quote, sometimes the best way for policymakers to make the world a better place is to leave it alone, end quote. Another idea, uh, connection be- the connection between choices and rewards or the consequences is the essence of responsibility. So if you break this, there are consequences. So there's, there has to be that connection, as, as I mentioned in the, when I was talking about gambling with other people's money. When, uh, profits encourage risk-taking and losses encourage prudence. So if you get rid of the ability for people to lose based on bad decisions or poor judgment, then you, you remove that, the essence of responsibility. So there has to be a connection between the choices that we make and the rewards and the consequences. Those choices can be economic choices. They can be moral choices. They can be choices we make just on a a daily basis. If you remove the reward and consequence, you remove the essence of responsibility. Big idea that comes up a lot. Another one, time is of the ultimate scarce, time is the ultimate scarce resource. And you've heard, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you, you've heard me say time and time again that time is the ultimate scarce resource. That comes up in so many different books. It came up in book two of this entire project, The Old Man and the Sea. It comes up in nonfiction, in fiction. Time is the ultimate scarce resource. Not money, not anything else, time. Two more ideas. Emergent order, obviously the, the biggie. Uh, Russ talks about that often. Um, it's something that happens that isn't the intention of the participants. It's a result of human action without human intention. There's no one in charge of the system. There's no weaver of the dreams. And you actually don't want somebody in charge of the system because there's just no way they could have enough information to, to weave everything together. The last idea, prices steer resources around the economy. Prices marshal knowledge. And let me read this quote from The Price of Everything. Here's the bottom line, she continued. Prices do many things. Because prices change, there aren't persistence shortages. Prices marshal knowledge to cope with changes in circumstances. And prices transfer money from buyers to sellers. The last part is the easiest part to see, and we often aren't happy about it. But if you treat prices like a thermostat, you can just dial down to make life easier for buyers. You will inevitably interfere with the other results that prices achieve. Know that there is no free lunch. Play with prices and you will bring disorder. You will lose the benefits of the flow of knowledge and resources that prices choreograph without a choreographer. End quote. Now onto the final segment and the one thing, my one key takeaway from these five books by Russ Roberts. 
And it's this. Let me let me just take a step back and set it up. We understand the baker. We understand the economic ramifications for that. The baker bakes bread for his or her community. And what that allows is for the people in the community to come to the baker, buy bread, and not have to make it themselves, which opens them up to do something else. And they, they make something else, and they serve the community in, in that same way. But they're not doing it for the sake of serving the community. They're doing it out of self-interest to provide for their family, to to uh, to make a life for, for, their, for their family. The self-interest of the baker. We understand that on the economic side. But what Russ does in How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life is he ties that to the moral side of things. So my small, small role, maybe I'm a baker. My small role as a baker plays a role in the economic emergent order. My small, small role in also, also plays a part in the moral emergent order. So it's not just this me as an economic item, an economic tool, creating, uh, being a part of, the, of this wider order. It's also on the moral side of things. So that means that my decisions on the economic side play a role. My decisions on the moral side play a role in the larger order of things. And it is, it's back to that smaller decisions idea that every everything is leading one direction or another, but not just for me, for the larger order, the moral emergent order. And so my decisions impact that. It, it may seem like a very small way that it impacts, but it, it, it ultimately impacts the larger order of things. So let me read just a few statements here from uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Every good deed we do has an immediate impact, but the ripple effects of the impartial spectator and the norms that are created by both our actions and our approval and disapproval of others creates an additional impact on the world around us. Again, that first part, every good deed we do has an immediate impact. It just, uh, and that's the end of that part. Uh, one, one other section here. If you want to make the world a better place, work on being trustworthy and honor those who are trustworthy. Be a good friend and surround yourself with worthy friends. Don't gossip. Resist the joke that might hurt someone's feelings, even when it's clever. And try not to laugh when your friend tells you that clever joke at someone's expense. Being good is not just good for you and those around you, but because it helps others be good as well. Set a good example and buy your loveliness you will not only be loved, but you may influence the world, end quote. Reiterate quickly, being good is not just good for you and those around you, but because it helps others be good as a well. So you are playing a part in this moral emergent order. That's where Russ ties the economic side of things to the moral side of things to the life well lived side of things and that's my one key takeaway that that it's not you're just not this economic unit that's that's doing things but you're you're a, it, there's a, a moral side of it as well and your your decisions are moving things one way or another they may be doing it on a small scale for your very life they may be doing it on a larger scale for society in general uh it's a big idea it's a cool that it came from an economist, uh, Adam Smith, someone we, someone we we think of as the economics guy, 
but he also wrote that other book. That's a big part of how Adam Smith can change your life. But these these overall ideas of the invisible hand and emergent order show up in all five of Russ's books here. So to recap, uh, if if you were to read just one of these books, I, I, I would suggest How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Um, it's it's my favorite of of his. It's it was also fun just to read through all five of, of Russ's books, especially after having listened to his podcast for so long and uh, to, to also witness the, his writing improve over, over the books. Uh, that, that was just a neat, neat th- thing to see as I, I was reading these books. When Russ's new book comes out, I, I do plan to read that and we'll likely cover it on this podcast at, at some point in the future as well. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. I'd love to hear if you've read some of Russ's books or if you're an Econ Talk podcast uh, aficionado or or, uh, you love his podcast as well. I'd I'd love to hear hear that. Uh, You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter, just at Books of Titans. Also, the website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create a reading list. I'll be back in two weeks discussing another book or another series of books from this year's reading list. And until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.